Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. It's good to worship together. It's good to give our hearts back again, fresh to the Lord. I, uh, I'm fresh back from a men's retreat where we did exciting things like uh, worship and uh, hang out together and smash cars. Yes, we really did. We smashed a car. We found an old beat up car that was headed to the dump and we said, come on, let's uh, take sledgehammers to this. And I want you to know there's no, there's no kind of therapy like that, I'll tell you. Just uh, having into it. I saw a lot of pastors up there really wailing on a heart. I thought, boy, I wonder what's going on. A little sore today for my own 30 seconds. Uh, I, was, uh, I was encouraged by the fact that some guy came up to me immediately afterwards and said, you can split wood at my house anytime. I was like, hey, maybe I did all right. Yeah, we're thankful to be here in the house of the Lord and, and able to worship and, and uh, have fun even as we do it and, and, and uh, pour out our lives to God. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your holy word. Thank you for how you encourage us. You give us strength and you meet us where we're at and you don't give up on us and you love us and you help us. And we just worship you for that. We're so thankful. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, we're on week four of our series, um, Giants in the Land, Facing Life's Challenges with Faith. Three weeks ago, we talked about the challenge, the giant of inadequacy, wondering, you know, really, how could it be that God would want me to do something like this? And uh, we talked about David, who was just a shepherd boy and who wasn't even on the list of people uh, who they called forward uh, when they called forward all his brothers to possibly be the next king. They left him in the field. Uh, he was probably feeling a little inadequate, but God ended up using him in great ways. Two weeks ago, we talked about uh, two big, overwhelming situations uh, in how David fought Goliath and how we all have these Goliaths of challenges that appear in our lives. And we talked about how God helps us through those situations. Last week, we talked about how uh, it was, our title was Not Fair, and we talked about how life is not fair in David's situation, he had helped out King Saul many times, and yet Saul felt jealous and was chasing him around the countryside and was threatening to kill him. And we talked about how life throws stuff in our direction sometimes, and we say, this isn't fair, this is wrong, and yet God still meets us there and still helps us through those situations. Well, today, the title of my sermon is Epic Fail, Epic Fail. Sometimes um, we deal with big personal failure. Well, epic fail is uh, often a humorous term. It's a phrase that uh, has become popular on internet videos. If you just Google epic fail, you're going to see some pretty great videos that will rival anything on America's Funniest Home Videos or, or whatever else that you might see out there. Uh, skateboarders wiping out, uh, people missing slam dunks. I love those. They kind of like get right up there and oh man, it bounces off or the board behind it shatters or whatever. Uh, wiping out on treadmills. I saw somebody the other day, their treadmill was backed right up against the wall. So when they wiped out, they fell, but then the wall wouldn't let them go anywhere. So they just kept on rolling. They rolled about three times on it. Uh, falling off ladders, falling off stages during musicals or while they're preaching. Pretty terrifying stuff. Uh, <laughs> tripping at weddings. Um, and uh, I, I thought I'd give you a couple videos here this morning that we could check out. Now, the guys back there in the booth freaked me out this morning because I had only approved video number 13, 
And they did 15, 14, and 13, and I had no idea what 15 and 14 were. And you know, sometimes these videos aren't really all that appropriate, and so it worked out just fine. You'll see right here. Here's 15. It's a quick one. There they are, and boom, down she goes, face first on the wedding dress. Yeah, sorry. This one's pretty good, too. I bet you never knew that uh, the NFL was part of uh, this experience here. You're going to see that live right here. Boom, right there. You like that? Pretty good. All out. That woman could play for the Green Bay Packers, I think, maybe. This is my favorite one. I love the music, too. And the anticipation. You know what's going to happen, don't you? You can feel it. <laughs> yeah. It's coming. Oh, yeah. Now, here we go. Here's the bite. Yeah. Hold on. It'll be out. No, it won't. Oh. And here's my favorite part. Oh, we'll just put the rest on the table for you. There's your wedding cake, friends. Have a nice day. Epic fail. I love that. I love that. Epic fail. It's pretty funny. Yeah, yeah. The hatches over here are freaking out. They just had a wedding a couple weeks ago. It's okay. It's all over. You guys survived. Yeah, that's right. It's, uh, it's pretty funny for us to watch other people's wedding cakes go down the drain. <laughs> I don't really know if that would be so funny if it was my wedding cake. Uh, epic fail. But epic fail uh, is not only these funny videos and things that happen to people, but also it can be a very, very serious thing, a very serious moment of personal failure, which has big consequences. I uh, remember talking to a guy many years ago who came to me, with a story of, of constant struggle. He'd had constant struggle in his life with, uh, with some mental illness. He had uh, made very many poor choices. He had a terrible temper that just would flare, and he would just let it go, and, and everybody around him would feel that wrath. He had been uh, <clears throat> unfaithful to his wife. It was, it was tough. It was tough. And I sat there listening to him, and I thought, you know, wow, this is tough. What, what can I say? But, of course... What I could say is the grace of God. God. God's grace covers this. And that is what I said to him. But, you know, when you face these kind of big failures, it, it, it's very, very helpful to go back to the Word of God and see what God has to say about these kind of things. So we're going to read this morning from 2 Samuel verse, uh, chapter 11, and we're going to read the story of David's epic fail, and then uh, we're going to see how God takes care of that. So 2 Samuel chapter 11, I encourage you to open your Bibles or the Pew Bible in front of you or just listen to this great story. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. 
Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was and how the soldiers were and how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance of the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told, Uriah didn't go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents And my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants, and he didn't go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you finish giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerob, Besheth? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab. Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Well, this certainly was an epic failure of character on David's part, isn't it? This is David, the man that the Bible says was called a man after God's own heart. That's how Samuel describes him. When he's uh, talking about how God has rejected Saul, he says God needs a man after his own heart, that is, David. And later in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 13, 
Paul says that David was a man after God's own heart because he did what the Lord wanted him to do. And you say, oh, that's great. And then you read 2 Samuel 11 and you go, really? Was David really a man after God's own heart? How could that be after this epic crash and burn on his part? Let's just note how really tragic this situation was. First of all, it says that David sends his army, his commanders, all these guys out to do this uh, battle in springtime. And what's he doing? He's back at the palace lazing around. He's not out there with him as he typically has been year after year. He's back home. He's just uh, biding his time. And, you know, uh, that's when things get a little crazy sometimes, isn't it? And that's what happens to him one night. He uh, walks up onto the palace roof and he sees Bathsheba bathing next door. He's walking around and he looks down and he sees her. And he doesn't say, whoa, I really shouldn't see that. And walk over here. He says, whoa, check that out. He's a peeping Tom. That's what he is. He's looking down off his roof and seeing her naked and saying, yeah, I like that. Moreover, he sends another guy to find out who she is. Hey, come here. Who's that naked woman down there? You know, the other guy must have been like, oh, uh, yeah, I think I'll go find out from somebody else. Kind of uh, makes me wonder about us, this whole checking out somebody like that. Do you know that right now, every second, 28,258 Americans are watching porn right now, right now. Of those, three quarters are men and one quarter are women. Yeah. Every time you click on one of those websites, you become part of the demand that drives that industry. We hear about human trafficking and we think, what a terrible thing. But we're a part of it if we're part of the demand. How are you doing on that? How are you doing? You can be free of that. You can. God can work in you and take that away from you. It can happen. Well, David isn't free of it at this moment. In fact, he's investigating. He goes digging. Who is she? He sends this guy to find out. Turns out she's the wife of one of his most important warriors. Uriah the Hittite is not a Jew. He's a Hittite. That's why they called him Uriah the Hittite. Some things are easy. <laughs> He's one of David's 37 special forces guys. It was called David's Mighty Men, recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 23. These are 37 guys who are specifically picked out because of their, their power as warriors. These, these are special forces kind of guys. This guy is a special guy. He's been with David for years. David... Uh, has relied on him as a special warrior, and it's his wife that David sleeps with. Yeah, that's right, all the way. He goes, finds out who she is, calls her up and sleeps with her. We don't know if there was any choice on her part. This is David. He was king. He could say, kill that person, and they'd kill him right there, no questions asked. If he calls her up and says, you're beautiful, I want to sleep with you, how much choice did she have? We don't know, but he certainly was 
a person with power. And it was certainly wrong. And then, of course, David attempts to hide his sin. He brings Uriah home and tells him to take a few days off. You know, go spend a little time with your wife. Well, what's the implication? He's going to sleep with her, and then when she, he finds out she's pregnant, he's going to think it's his own kid. How awful is that, that David would, would ask Bathsheba to keep that secret, and that he would allow Uriah for the, for the rest of his life to think that this kid was his, even when it wasn't. That's the kind of deception David was trying to draw Uriah into. Unfortunately for him, Uriah is this incredibly noble and honorable guy. He doesn't go home to his wife. He sleeps out on a mat at the gate. And David says, what's your problem? Aren't you, uh, you know, in need of a little R&R here? And he says, no. He says, when the ark of the Lord and Israel and Judah and my, my captain Joab and everybody's out in the field, I'm not going to be going home and resting that wouldn't be honorable for me to do. He's saying this to David, who's home resting, who's not out there with everyone else. You know, that must have just been an uncomfortable moment for David. Just one of those, oh, yeah, you wouldn't do anything dishonorable like that like I'm doing right now. And so he says, well, maybe I can kind of trick him into it. So he brings him back and he gets him a little drunk. And certainly that's not something that's to Uriah's credit. But he's with it enough at this point that he doesn't go back and sleep with his wife. He still goes back and goes out and sleeps at the gate. And so in that simple action, he seals his fate because David calls him in the next day and says, I've got a letter I want you to send to Joab, the general. I want you to bring him this important bit of information. You'll see this is, it would typically be rolled up like this and tied up in some sort of seal on it. And ironically, Uriah carries the very letter which calls for his murder. And he's such an honorable guy that he doesn't open the letter, which would have saved his life if he had. Well, at least initially, although if they had opened these things, that would have been death itself. So anyway, he doesn't open it. David knows he's an honorable enough guy to carry this letter. And just the irony of that and the evilness of that, to have him deliver the letter that causes him to get killed. Of course, when David delivers this letter, he's saying to Joab, I want you to be an accomplice in a murder. That's right. I want you to do this. And people are going to die. And of course, not just Uriah died. The other four or five guys that were up there with him, given their all, are also killed at the, at the foot of the, the wall. We're talking adultery. We're talking cover-up. We're talking multiple murders. David has acted unbelievably badly. Well, God does respond. We didn't have a chance to read this this morning, but if you'll put up that picture of that cute little lamb. There we go. Isn't that nice? God says to the prophet Nathan, I've got a job for you today, Nathan. You thought it was going to be a normal day, a nice easy week. I just want you to know this news. And he tells Nathan the situation that David has put himself in. That alone would have been a devastating moment for Nathan. Oh, you're kidding me. But then he says, and I want you to go tell him that he's been wrong." And that there's consequences. Now, that's a bad day for Nathan. 
I mean, Nathan had just had his cup of coffee. He was relaxing, reading the paper. Everything was good. And all of a sudden, he's got to go deliver a message that the person he delivers it to can say, I don't really like you anymore. I'm going to have you killed. In fact, you're the only one who knows this, right? David could have taken him out right there and tried to hide it even more. Well, Nathan does go faithfully. But he's smart enough to not just walk in and say, hey, have I got a message for you. Instead, he starts out with this story. And he tells us, this is a brilliant story. He says, David, let me tell you about this guy I know. He has this wonderful little lamb. And he loves this lamb so much. And he cuddles the lamb. And it's so great. And he lives right next to this really rich guy who's got just thousands and thousands of sheep. And a visitor comes to visit the rich guy. And the rich guy doesn't just go out and get one of his sheep to become that evening's meal. He goes over to his neighbor and takes the only lamb that guy has and slaughters it to become the meal for the visitor. How do you feel about that, David? And David says, that guy was wrong. That guy should die for that. That's so awful. And Nathan says, you're the guy. You're the guy. And here's the moment where we start to see that David is a man after his own heart. Nathan says, you're the guy, David, and here's the consequences. The sword will never depart from your house. Your household will always experience violence. You'll be betrayed by a family member. That family member will abuse, will rape some of your wives. More innocent people will suffer, David. In fact, this child that's been born of Bathsheba will die. God doesn't want this to happen. God doesn't make this happen, but he knows that this is the fruit of David's evil actions. And David, upon hearing all that, which is incredibly depressing and sad, and we might sit here and go, wow, this is so discouraging. Upon hearing all that, he does that which causes him to be called a man after his own, God's own heart. He utterly repents of his actions. David gets on his face before God and asks forgiveness. He, he owns it. He wrote it here in Psalm 51. This is a psalm of David specifically recorded for this particular event. I want you to listen to these words. This is what David said to God. And it said that he prayed for a whole week, praying and fasting. This is the core of what he said. Have mercy on me, O God because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins, wash me free, clean from my guilt, purify me from my sin, for I recognize my rebellion, it haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. Purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. Renew a right spirit within me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation. And make me willing to obey you. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God, who saves. Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O Lord, 
that my mouth may praise you. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. This is the core of his prayer for seven days, praying and fasting on his face before the Lord. David owns his personal failure. He doesn't blame anybody else. He doesn't try to say, you know, really, it's not that bad. I mean, think about it. Those guys were going to die anyway. Or a thousand other things he could have said. He just gets on his face and he prays for mercy and he prays for forgiveness and he prays that God will give him a clean heart and a chance to praise him once again. And guess what God does? Guess what God does? God completely forgives David. Completely forgives him. Doesn't take away the consequences. But the guilt is forgiven. This is the core good news about who God is. Despite our personal failures, God does not hate us. If you're tempted to think for any reason whatsoever, boy, God's really going to hate me for this one, you're wrong. That's not true. God will never hate you. God is 100% in love with you. Nothing you ever do will cause God to not love you. Nothing you ever do or say or think will cause him to love you less. Isaiah 55 says, let the wicked repent and turn to God. And then what will you think comes next? And he will forgive them. Why? Because it makes sense? No, it doesn't make sense. Why? Because God says, because your ways are not my ways. And your thoughts are not my thoughts. In fact, my ways are higher than your ways. And my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. That's why I forgive people who come to me broken, having broken others, having done great epic failures, I let them come to me and I forgive them. God is pleased when we admit our sin because he wants to and he promises to forgive us for everything we have ever done. Yes, everything. Think about it right now. That thing that you wake up those, idea, those, those realities in your past that you think about at 3 o'clock in the morning when you wake up and you think, does God really love me? Am I really forgiven of that stuff? Was that really me? Yeah, that was me. I can't believe I did that. God believes it. And he still loves you. And he forgives you. And he says, all you have to do is own it. Admit it. Admit what you did, turn your back on it, that's repent. Not just say, I'm sorry, but say, I don't want any of that. I, I know I did that. I don't want that to be me. I don't want to go in that direction anymore. Admit, repent, and ask. Ask for forgiveness and ask for the Holy Spirit. And ask that God would help you to not want that anymore. Because frankly, sometimes we go, I don't want that anymore. And five minutes later we go, man, that was kind of good, you know. Maybe I do want a little bit more of that. God can give you the freedom from that. He can give you a heart that says, I don't want that. I really do repent of that. I might have to wake up every morning. I might have to say it several times a day. But I do not want that in my life. Admit it, repent of it, and ask. Ask for forgiveness 
and ask for the Spirit. And the result is, is that we are completely freed from guilt, completely free. Now, I'm not just talking about some, you know, esoteric concept, some theoretical idea. Oh, I'm free from guilt. No, no, no. I'm talking about sleep. I'm talking about being able to, to, to live with yourself. I'm talking about being able to, somebody talks to you about freedom and you go, oh man, I know what freedom is. Let me tell you, I've lived freedom. I'm free right now. This isn't just some concept, ethereal out there. This is a reality that changes our lives. To be totally guilt-free. Now, that doesn't mean that we're consequence-free. We still have consequences. I'll talk about that in a moment. But we are guilt-free. We are free of that guilt that could just bear down on us. And if you're wondering, oh, really? I mean, where does it say that exactly in the Bible? I'll give it to you. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Sometimes, you guys, you just got to pull this baby out and go, I'm going to read that again. Because I need to hear that. I need to understand that that applies to me. Romans 8.38 and 39, nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below, indeed nothing in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Yeah. That is good news. Friends, some of us have burned some bridges. Some of us have burned some big bridges. Some of us have done some stuff that we're ashamed of. All of us have done things like this. All of us have hurt people in serious ways. All of us could probably, if we were honest, look at David and go, yeah, maybe I didn't do the exact same stuff he did, but I get that. I understand that rebellious spirit. I see that in myself. And here's the deal. Here's the deal. The good news is you cannot burn your bridge to God. You cannot burn your bridge to God. You can start it on fire, but he shows up with the fire trucks right away. He keeps putting that out. He keeps building that bridge back to you. He keeps on saying, no, 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 the bridge is here. Now, you don't have to walk on it. I'm not going to force you to walk on it, but you try to burn it, it's not going to happen. I'm here and I'm offering you every single day, hour, minute, forgiveness and grace and life. I have people say to me, I, I don't know, Pastor Bill, I'm just not God material. You know, will you pray for me because I don't think God hears my prayers. You know, if you think that God doesn't hear your prayers, I just want to tell you something. It's a total lie. A complete lie. God hears your prayers. The only reason you're praying is because God said to you, you know, shouldn't you pray right now? That'd probably be a really good idea. Every time you think, maybe I should pull out my Bible. Maybe I should pray. God is the one that's calling you to do that. He hears every prayer. And it's a lie from Satan to say, oh, that's, that's probably not for you. No. No. You cannot burn your bridge to God. 
The Bible says, and Margie said this earlier, the perfect description of love, while we were still sinners, Christ came and died for us. Jesus came into this world and died on the cross to take away our sins so that you and I can be made right with God, made free from our guilt, made whole again. It really doesn't matter what you've done. Whether you've abused your body through addictions, whether you've harmed your marriage through unfaithfulness, whether you've lost your temper countless times, whether you've stolen something or many things, whether you've neglected your duty or abused an innocent person or murdered someone, no personal failure is a giant that God cannot handle. You cannot burn your bridge to God. God still loves you. And yes, there are consequences. I said that earlier. If you go out and crash your car for speeding, your car's still going to be totaled. Even when you're forgiven by God, you're still going to have to go to the judge and talk about how you were speeding and pay the fine. But wouldn't you rather go there knowing that Jesus is standing at your side saying, you're forgiven. I'll help you pay. I'll help you work on the consequences. I'll help you regain the trust that you lost. This person still is hurt that you harmed. I'll help you help them or help somebody else help them. But you're going to be free. You are free of the guilt. It's been taken away. And I'll give you the strength to pay your restitution. And you'll be able to sleep at night. And you don't have to hide. That's huge. God will look at our faults. And he will forgive us. You know, today's Pentecost. It's the birthday of the church. It's the day that the first 120 disciples were hit with the Holy Spirit and they walked out into Jerusalem and they preached and 3,000 people became Christians that day. And the reason is, is they said, after Peter preached, they said, we've heard it. What do we have to do to be saved? And Peter said to them, repent. Admit it, repent, and ask. And he'll give it to you. Friends, that's our offering today. Let's pray. Thank you, God, that that's a reality for us. Right now, we pray that you will help us to look at square and say, that's true, that's who I am. But Lord, I'm giving it to you. I turn my back on it. I don't want any more of that. And I ask for your forgiveness. Lord, I pray that right now, many people in this room will own, maybe even for the first time, that you love them, that they are forgiven, and that freedom is here. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.